We're continuing in our First Fruit series today, and as we began this series, we looked at the concept, uh, the principle of First Fruits, what that is, and how that applies to us today, and it really does. Uh, Last week, I gave you some specific examples of what God does through your personal giving here at this church, and what He invites you in to be a part of, and hopefully that encouraged you, and hopefully that motivated all of us uh, to evaluate what God would have us to do by way of giving. And today, as we continue, I want to focus on what happens to us at the heart level when we are faithful to give in our finances. What happens to the heart? And there is a, a principle, a reality that I absolutely believe And it's the title that I gave this message, which is, A Giving Heart Equals a Guarded Heart. A Giving Heart Equals a Guarded Heart. And there are two major, very specific ways that God uses our giving to Him, our giving of our resources, which He has entrusted to us. It belongs to Him, all of it does. But when we give of the resources that he has instructed, uh, entrusted to us, then something happens in a very specific way to our heart. And there are some very specific ways that our heart is guarded. And I want to share those with you today. The first aspect of, of our heart in terms of it being guarded as it relates to giving is that giving to God guards the heart against dishonoring him. Giving to God guards the heart against dishonoring him, which failing to give or failing to give in the right attitude always results in. God will never be honored if we don't decide and choose and commit to being faithful in our giving to him and recognize that it is to him we're giving. If we don't do that, if we neglect that and follow through on all kinds of other spiritual disciplines then he's not going to be truly honored by our lives. That's how important giving is. And when we give, it's just as important to give in the right heart, to have the right attitude when we give, to have the right mindset, to view it the right way, to understand who it is we're giving to and what that requires of us as we give to God. There's a great example of this truth in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 in David's life. 1 Chronicles 21, we'll be zeroing in on verses 21 through 25. We'll also uh, look at Malachi 3.8. But to give you a little bit of context and background to what's going on in 1 Chronicles with David, um, David, in the later part of his reign, he decided that he wanted to take a census, a registration of all of Israel. He wanted to find out how big the population had grown, what resources they had, how strong his army was. And it all came from a place of pride and arrogance. And one of his chief counselors tried to dissuade him from doing this and said, look, this is not going to end well. This is not good. Your mindset is not right here. You're operating from a place of pride. There's no way God's going to bless this. Please, King David, don't do this. But David did it anyway. He didn't heed the advice or the counsel of his trusted advisor and his friend. He did it anyway. And sure enough, it was a total example of sin 
before God. God became very angry with that decision. And so he punished not just David, but the entire nation of Israel. And he let David choose which punishment he would receive. It was either going to be three years of famine, or he was going to be attacked by uh, the neighboring countries, by the enemies, or he would just allow God to deal out the punishment as he saw fit, and there would be pestilence, there would be plague. Well, David chose the plague, and so 70,000 people in Israel died within just a matter of days. Can you imagine that? And so David quickly realizes, man, I, I totally blew it. I, I totally should not have done this. This, was a place, this came from a place of pride. This was total foolishness on my part. God, please have mercy. Punish me. It was me that did this. Please spare my people. And so God said that he would cease the plague and that David was to go and sacrifice before him. And he would stop this judgment. So David comes to uh, a place that is actually on Mount Carmel. It's the same mountain where Isaac was going to be sacrificed by Abraham, and God stepped in and, and kept him from that. And it's the same spot that in the future Jesus would be crucified. Really amazing side story there. Uh, And it'd be a great study for you to do to compare all of that. But that's the mountain range where David was to go to this threshing floor to make the sacrifice, to make the burnt offering, to atone for his sin and, and the people so that God would stop this judgment. So that's the context for where we jump in. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 21. David came to Ornan, and when Ornan looked and saw David... He's the owner of this plot of land, this threshing floor that's up on this peak in this mountain range of of Carmel. When Ornan looked and saw David, he left the threshing floor and bowed to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, give me this threshing floor plot so that I may build an altar to the Lord on it. Give it to me for the full price so the plague on the people may be stopped. Ornan said to David, Take it, my lord the king may do whatever he wants. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. King David answered Ornan, No, no, I insist on paying the full price. Catch this next part. For I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 15 pounds of gold for the plot. David knew that it would not be a true gift or a sacrifice to God if it did not cost him something. And we need to understand that too. We need to have that mindset that when we come before God and we come to honor him, we come to praise him and we give our offerings and we, we make what is for us today a sacrifice before him in the form of putting our, our resources or an example of our resources in those plates that are passed among you or other ways that we do that. When we're doing that, we need to have the same mindset that David had, which is that because this is God that I'm coming before, because this is God I'm bringing this gift before, it's not just any other person 
I need it to cost something. I, I need to look at it that way. It needs to be a thing of value. It needs to have the weight of a sacrifice in it. David understood that. But it's also important to know and to remember that it's not about a specific amount. It's not about an exact dollar amount. It's about motive. It's about motive. It's, it's all about the heart. And David's heart in this passage communicated that he really understood who it was he was preparing to worship and sacrifice before. And so David wanted his devotion to actually cost him, which is part of showing honor. And that's true for anyone. I mean, we understand that. That's why we either spend money or spend time in making something original and unique for Christmas and birthdays and anniversaries. It's because we, we understand when we give a gift to someone in that context, we're saying, I value you. I want to honor you. I want you to know how much you mean to me. I want you to know that you are significant in my life. That's the danger of regifting, right? That's why to be very careful about regifting. Because you might find yourself in the middle of a popular episode of a sitcom or a romantic comedy where the guy just totally blows it. You know, because he, he ends up giving his significant other something that he had already given or something that they had, she had given him and they repackage it, you know, and, and gives the gift thinking, oh, she'll, she won't remember any of this. And sure enough, she does. And the wife has spent all this money or all this time on the gift to him. And then he looks like a real idiot, right? That, that scenario plays out all over the place. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in the same predicament. We understand all of us do, about the concept of honoring someone that you value and someone that you love and, and showing that honor in the form of either paying for it, actually spending some money, or spending some time to make something that is special. And if that's true of everyone else in our lives, if that's true of human-to-human relationships, it's, it's all the more true for God. I mean, when we understand this is the creator and ruler of the entire universe, this is the sovereign over all things, this is the maker and the keeper of eternity, this is the supreme, holy, righteous one that we're coming before. And he has graciously entrusted to us a a certain amount of resources to manage. And when we take of of what he has blessed us with and we, we give it to him, we need to have the concept that he deserves the first and the best. He deserves highest honor. And what David did here with Ornan, it shows that he considered being able to honor God, which is a privilege, being able to bring sacrifice to God, being able to worship him in this way. He considered it as something high in value. My question to you, to me, for all of us today Do we consider what we do, what we just did a few moments ago, the act of physical offering, do we consider that a privilege or just something else that we do every single week? It's, you know, it's an obligation. It's a ritual. It's a tradition. This is what we do. So here, I'm going to do it again. Or do we we see it as a true act? act of worship, which is what it is and what it should be, 
And are we glad in our very hearts at being able to do it? When you give your, your offering, do you do so from a place of praise? In your mind, and your heart, as you're doing that, you're saying, thank you, Lord, for this privilege that I have to even do this. Thank you, Lord, for giving me means, financial means, that I can actually contribute here. Thank you. We spent a lot of time last week talking about what a privilege it is to be part of what God is doing in the kingdom and, and in this world, part of his plan that he invites us into. We need to view it that way as something high in value. The other thing I want to make sure we understand about what we see here and with David uh, paying for this field and offering this is that his physical expression here was in proportion to his means. And that there was equal expression of honor and sacrifice like we see with what David is doing on display in the widow's offering in the New Testament in Luke Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, where the widow is bringing her gift and Jesus is there with his disciples. He's observing everyone giving uh, there at the temple complex. And he looks at his disciples and he says, I want you to look at that woman, this widow that's giving just these two, basically even half of a penny is what it would come out to, two mites the widow is putting in. And he said, she is putting more in than all these other people have put in together. And that wouldn't have made sense literally to the disciples, because they would have heard the clank, 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 and and the weight of all that was given. They would have seen that, and then they'd see this woman, this measly little gift. But Jesus said, the reason that's true, the reason reason she outgave all these other people this day is because they gave out of their leftovers. She gave the first and the best. She gave all she had. You see, that's the heart behind any gift. David gave much, yeah, he really did. I mean, the equivalent of what he gave in our day and age would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he didn't just buy this one little plot of land. Most likely he bought the entire range because later, and you see it in the same book just later on, it becomes the site of the temple. This plot of ground that he buys from Ornon to make atonement for his sin and the the judgment on Israel actually becomes the temple complex. And then later, it becomes the ultimate spot for sacrifice when Jesus was crucified there. David gave much because he had much to give. And certainly, for those of us who have much, we should give much. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just how it should be. That's spiritual logic there. If you have much, you should be willing and eager and joy-filled to be able to give much. But it does not mean that the more you give necessarily means the more God is honored or the more he will honor you. That's a fallacy. It's that kind of thinking that gets a lot of people in trouble. There's a lot of false doctrine and teaching that's built on that premise. That the only way you're going to get really blessed by God is if you give a certain dollar amount. It's got to hit this level or else it just really doesn't matter. No, not the case at all. And if we give much so that we will get much from God, if that's our mindset, that is not honoring to him and it's not something he will honor us for. We're told to give cheerfully, willingly, 
and to give according to the means with which God has given us. It's very important to understand that. So that's what we see on display in David's example. What a great example it is. He got it. He understood it. This is God I'm giving to, and I need to to give. It's going to cost me something. It needs to cost me something to show I value him, to show I honor him. And giving to God in this way certainly guarded David's heart against continuing to dishonor him. I want to also look at Malachi 3.8. Malachi 3.8, God is actually saying a, a, very, uh, a very chilling statement to Israel. And he says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? And he answers very directly, By not making the payments of the tenth, the tithe, and the contributions. By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. God calls what Israel was doing robbery because they kept as their possessions what belonged to God. And this isn't, this isn't because only the tithes and the offerings belong to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything. So many times we, we can wrongly think of the tithe as, okay, that's God's portion, that's his money, that's, that's what he is owed, and then the rest I have the freedom to do with what I want. Wrong. It's all God's. And everything we have belongs to him. He's just loaned it to us. He's entrusted whatever we have, whatever is in your bank account, whatever is in your wallet, whether it's a little or a lot, it's something that he has given to you to manage. We're stewards. There's a great parable that Jesus teaches about that very same concept. Whatever resources you have, Whatever possessions are yours, they're given to you by God to manage and to steward for him. And we really should have a kingdom and an eternal perspective on everything that comes into our hands. So it's not just that the tithes and the offerings belong to God. In fact, everything does. And he allows us to keep some as managers on his behalf. But the tithes and offerings, they really are different. Okay? They belong to what the Lord calls my house. And they are set aside exclusively to him to properly uh, honor and glorify him, to show his rightful place as first and exalted over all. And it's also what he uses then to provide for other people, to bless other people, to build his kingdom, to further his work. So the tithe, the offering, all that is to be set aside at the beginning. That's what we've talked about all through first fruits. It's not like, here's this obligation and this obligation, this responsibility, this commitment, and then at the very bottom, once all that's done, here's what I give to God. No, that's backwards. It's we take our income, we take our produce, whatever that is, and we say at the very beginning, from the very top, first, before anything else, that's what I give to God in worship. And Israel was, was not doing this. They were failing to do it, deliberately so. And God called them out on it. He said, you're robbing me. What? What? What do you mean we're robbing you? And he said, well, I'll tell you how. What about that tithe? Where is it? And on a practical note, many people 
with financial problems, for example, which I think we've all been there at some point. Easy to be there again. We understand what it is, I think, most of us, to struggle, to wonder where the next source of income is going to come. Is it going to come? Will I make, make this obligation? Will I be able to pay this bill or that bill? Will I be able to have food in the fridge? It's a hard place to be. It's not fun. But what happens many times is when we enter into a season like that with financial strain or struggle, we actually easily fail and frequently fail to do the most important thing first, which is to obey and honor God with the resources we have, whatever they may be at the time. You see see what I mean? Sometimes you might have more than others. At, At various times in your life, you might have more at your disposal. But that's not the point. The point is that whatever your level of resource and supply and income is, whatever that is, you obey and you honor God with that first before anything else. And when we put God and his kingdom first, he promises, promises to meet our other needs. And that's what verse 10 of this chapter expresses. He says, try me on this. Come on, test me. See if after you doing what you're supposed to, your part, if if you obey me and you honor me rightly, you give me the first and the best, just see what happens. I promise you, I will take care of the rest. I will bless the rest in a way that you can't even fathom. And so ironically, what happens many times when we find ourselves in kind of dire straits financially, when we're struggling in that way, we, we actually end up hurting ourselves more by doing what we might think at the time to be smart and wise, which is, oh, well, you know, I, I haven't gotten paid in, in however many weeks and I only have this much available. Maybe I should just hold off on the tithe until I get more money in. That's actually backwards. You're actually hurting yourself when you do that. What will happen, and I've I've seen this personally, and and you have too, I'm sure, especially when we're in those circumstances. When we, by faith and in a sacrificial spirit, which is definitely how it feels when you have nothing, right? It definitely feels like a sacrifice then to give. What happens though when we do that? God honors what is given, he receives what is given, he multiplies what is given, and then he blesses you as the giver. He takes care of your needs, and then you you are blown away beyond that point how God just keeps coming through. You've seen that. I know you have. And it's beautiful. And man, what that does to your faith in those moments And that's exactly the type of mindset we should have. And that's what God was calling his people to have here in this passage. See, what this means, taking all of this as a whole, is that we need to honor God and exalt him first because he's worthy. I think we all understand that and agree with that. He's worthy. But it's also because... That's the only way to be really content. And that's the only way to be properly ordered and aligned in our lives. Only when God is truly first and exalted over our lives, over every aspect, 
Only when that happens, only when he is first in our finances, will we be able to truly be content with our finances. Contentment is directly dependent on where God is in our lives and where he is over our lives. What order is he? That directly affects the level of our contentment. And then beyond that, only when he is first above our lives does everything else fall into its proper order and alignment. That's why it's so important to honor God in the right way with our finances. And giving to God guards the heart against dishonoring him. Well, the other area that giving to God guards our heart against is that giving to God guards the heart against false fulfillment. Giving to God guards the heart against false fulfillment. I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 6 and looking at a few verses there, beginning in verse 19. Jesus here gives us a a very needed challenge that we need to keep in front of us, that we need to keep going back to because we forget. We're prone to do the opposite. Matthew 6, 19, he says this, Don't store up, don't hoard, don't amass for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. In other words, where everything is very fluid, where everything is very temporal and limited. But in contrast, store up, do amass, do pursue, do collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One way I look at that is I see, I see the, the treasures, whatever they may be, as, as being something that's tied directly to the heart. And the heart is just going to follow along with whatever the, the treasure is. And, and however that leads, the heart will be there in tow. Our heart is directly attached to whatever we value most. Whatever we say is our supreme affection, whatever receives our total devotion, whatever occupies the highest place in our heart, that's what our heart actually gets shaped by. So where your treasure is, there you're going to find your heart. And what your treasure is, what you treasure, you'll also see your heart resembling. And then in verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then here's the bomb. You cannot serve, that's place yourself before, that's give yourself over to, live for, that's what's wrapped up in that word serve. You cannot do that with both God and money. Can't do it. It's impossible. You're going to find yourself giving your heart, your your total heart, your whole person to one or the other. It's always going to be that way. It's not going to ever have an equilibrium. And all of this that Jesus addresses here, what that represents is an illusion of security. An illusion of security. It's a mirage. 
when we go after treasures here on earth, treasures in this life, when we give our, our total attention and all of our concentration and we allow uh, the space of our heart, which is very limited, by the way, when we allow the space of our heart to be filled up and stacked one on top of the other with things of just the world and the physical nature of our life, when that's our focus, when that's our objective, when we allow that to be our goal, stuff, things, more money, more money, when we allow that to occupy us, what inevitably will happen is we'll feel for a time maybe secure, we'll feel for a little bit of time safe, we'll feel a little bit of contentment, but it doesn't last long at all. It immediately ends up leaving us inevitably, and then we're left wanting with even more. You know, sometimes the, the superstar athletes in our world uh, that have these multi-million dollar contracts, they're interviewed after they maybe get a brand new contract or maybe they've won some great competition like the World Series or the Super Bowl or the finals. And many times they're asked, now how do you feel? How does this make you feel? Do you feel totally satisfied now? Are you content? And inevitably the answer is no. No, I really thought this would fill the emptiness But what I found is that it doesn't. I need one more. I need another championship. I need another contract. It's more and more, and that's true of just about any facet of society that plays out over and over. And that's what we will find, too. If we chase after the things of earth as opposed to the things of heaven, if we, if we build our own personal kingdom as opposed to pursuing the kingdom of God, we're going to find ourselves very disappointed. And very empty indeed. Also in Hebrews, we have a, another very similar challenge. Hebrews 13.5. Word of God says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Notice the challenge is not keep your life free of money whatsoever. Just forget it. I know, you know, you may, you may need it in society. You may need it in life, but just don't. Just make yourself totally empty of all financial resources. That's not what this says. It says keep your life free from the love of money. Don't allow money to be the thing you love. Don't let that receive your affection. Don't let that be what you depend on for your satisfaction. Instead, look at what the verse says, be satisfied with what you have. Be content. Why? How can we do that? How can we get to that place? Well, the answer is in the last part of this verse. For he himself has said, the Lord God has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. You see, this promise right there, that promise, I will never leave you or abandon you, signed God, that promise is what provides peace. More money will not provide peace. More resources, more possessions, more things, more treasures, more kingdoms will not ever provide peace. What provides peace is knowing that we have a God who will never, ever leave us to our own circumstance. He will never leave us or abandon us no matter what. And the same cannot be said for our our income. The same cannot be said for our position. 
The same cannot be said of our talents. The same cannot be said with with our intelligence or our abilities. All of those things, even your loved ones, will at some point disappoint you. And they are not sturdy enough baskets to put all your eggs in. They're going to break through. The only place of true security and the only source of lasting peace is found in God who promises this, that I will never leave you or abandon you. Another place in Scripture, Jesus says that I'm the same yesterday in the past, I'm the same today in your present, and tomorrow in your future. I'm the same. I'm consistent all the time. You can anchor yourself to me. That's where we need to be anchored. So my question to you is, what are you anchoring yourself to? What is your mindset? Is it tied Do more of what you think you need in the form of income and resources and supply? Or is it tied to the source of constant consistency and the source of powerful peace? And lastly, on this principle of the fact that giving to God guards the heart against false fulfillment, is 1 Timothy 6.10. Similar to Hebrews 13.5. Paul is writing and encouraging his young uh, child in the faith and fellow minister of the gospel that he's mentored, Timothy. And he says this, For the love of money, there it is again, the love of money, putting that up high in your priorities and letting that be what you're dependent on and what you pursue, setting your affections on that. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So many times this verse gets misquoted or misinterpreted. Money is the root of all evil. No. (laughs) Money is just money. It's what it is. The love of money, choosing to love money and elevate it, that is a root of all kinds of evil. And he goes on and he says, by craving it, by craving money, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Maybe you've been there before at some point in your life, and you can personally identify with that being true. If not you, then certainly you've seen someone where their life just starts to unravel, and their life implodes because what they became consumed with and driven by, money, not only did not fulfill them, but it wounded them. And the repercussions of several choices that were made to keep money or to get more money, the result of that led them down very, very dark alleys for sure. This is idolatry on display. This is idolatry. And an idol will never, ever do you any favors. No matter what that idol is, it's always going to cause you harm. And the love of money here that Paul's talking about You need to understand, it's a trap that does not discriminate. Loving money and going after money and being obsessed with more money and the almighty dollar, serving that instead of the almighty God, that is a trap that does not ever discriminate. Both the rich and the poor fall prey to it. Many times those with a lot of money and a lot of resources, they just want more and more. Uh, Years ago... Steve Jobs, before he passed away, he was interviewed, the the creator of Apple, founder of Apple, CEO, and he became incredibly wealthy. 
close to Bill Gates. He wasn't quite there. And someone asked him, man, Steve, you've enjoyed such success over a short amount of time. Um, are you going to stop? I mean, is this enough? Are you going to retire and just take what you have and, and just go on and enjoy the rest of your life? And he said, no, no, I haven't gotten enough. I, it's not enough yet. Well, when, when is it going to be enough? When will it ever be enough? One dollar more was the answer. Just a dollar more, dollar more, dollar more. Man, it's a trap. People in that mindset, they have fallen prey to the trap of the love of money. But the same can be said for people on the other side of the spectrum. When you don't have not just a lot of money, maybe any money. And many times, someone that's in a true uh, state of poverty... They are so hungry for and so passionate about getting money that that's all that occupies them. And they're willing to do just about anything to get it. You know, those who have it are willing to do anything to keep it sometimes, and their greatest fear is losing what they have. Those who don't have it are willing to do anything to get it, and their greatest fear is never achieving whatever they see as the ideal financial situation. And both people are driven endlessly, and both people are miserable. See, no matter where you land on that, wealth or poverty, neither of which is necessarily sinful in and of itself. But no matter how you land on either side of that, it's all about where your heart is in that. And what your motivation is and what drives your mind and your mindset. And keeping Jesus at the center of it and everything else in our lives, that is the cure for the idolatry present in this passage And present in the love of money. He's the source of contentment. He's the source of peace. He's the source of purpose. He's the source of joy. Never going to find that in anything to do with money. And giving to God with a joyful heart and a joyful spirit guards against such false fulfillment. There's a great, beautiful prayer in Psalm 16.5, where David says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. Isn't that great? All that that would be the cry of our heart, that that would be where our mindset and our heart is that we would say truly and sincerely before God, Lord, you are my portion. I'm not looking for anything else to be my portion and what holds me. I'm looking to you. You are my portion. And Lord, you are my cup of blessing. I'm not going to depend on any other means of blessing. I'm not going to see another source of blessing as anywhere near what you are and what you provide for me because you hold my future. Not money, not the dollar, not possessions. They don't hold my future. They don't Give me the blessing I really need. That's not what I'm going to look for and pursue. It's you, God. May that be our our heart's cry. Church, don't let money, don't let possessions, don't let materialism have God's honor. Don't let them get the honor that's due him and, and should be with him alone. But also don't let them have your mind or heart. Have the resources God has given you. Don't let the resources God has given you have you. 
And certainly don't let them get his honor. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your many blessings in our lives. We here in this place truly have much. We have much to be thankful for. And we have much to be responsible for. Help us to remember that you have made us stewards of what all belongs to you that you have just entrusted to us with which to honor you by and to bless others by. Help us to have the proper perspective as it relates to money and wealth and possessions. And Father, help us to be people that give of a sincere, joy-filled heart and, and to be guarded against dishonoring you. Help us to be guarded in our hearts against false fulfillment and sources of satisfaction that aren't really satisfaction at all. Help us to give to you freely and to experience our hearts being guarded in that way as well. Father, for all of this, we admit that we need your power. We need your spirit to help us in this, to direct us in this. And so I pray for every person here, myself, my brothers and sisters, that we would be people that truly yield ourselves, every aspect of our lives, starting with our finances, to you daily, moment by moment, all by the empowerment of your Spirit and by his direction in our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.